Fairy Sherry here, host of Pink Noise Radio. And today, I'm making a ruckus with my longtime friend, Jerry Jazz. We met in the advertising field as fellow artist representatives after I moved to Seattle from Canada to open RepArt. I later went to work for him, and he became my first American employer. He dazzled me then with his stories, insight, and wisdom. And I was curious what would happen if I pressed record on a conversation today. So how can I help you today? I am here for the storytelling abilities of one Jerry Jazz. I brought my pet rock, so. Oh, good. No, we can see it, and it can't talk. I found this rock, and it's emerging from another rock, which I thought was, you know, kind of cool. Yeah, it sure is. When I found this, uh, which was like 30 years ago or something like that, I just love the fact that something was emerging from something that seemed done already. And because if you just looked at this, you know, hey, it's a rock. And yet here's this part that is is being born really out of this rock. And I was just like, what? And so I was just like, all right. And so I had this thing in my pocket all the time that I was an artist representative. And it wasn't like it was a charm and it was gonna make a deal go good or anything like that. It was just like putting a shirt on and a tie and the lucky rock was in my pocket. I didn't have expectations of it. And I named it my lucky rock because people kept saying, what's that? And I, you know, so I was just like, oh, that's my lucky rock, you know. I think a lot of things have stuck that I improvised and I just, I went with whatever the explanation was that kind of organically came out of that. I would be, you know, with my camera gear, taking pictures and I've got like, you know, I'm, I'm more than a guy with his phone taking pictures of like a party. And people would come up and they say, well, what are you doing with that? What are you gonna do with those photos? My response was totally geared to this person in that their question was not like, hey, what are you gonna do with the photos? You know. Uh, but more like, hey, what are you going to do with those photos? And so I said, oh, sorry. Uh, I run a site called buybackmyphoto.com. And what I do is I post the worst photo of each person up there. And then I notify your social media group. And they bid to keep it up and you bid to take it down. And so after a week, uh, whoever is winning, you either go in the wall of shame or you get your rights back. They were like, well, fuck you, you know. And... <laughs> And I just made it up, you know, it was just like, so. <laughs> and so I actually own buybackmyphoto.com because I thought, well, that'd be pretty funny. Living with Kay for 15, 17 years, one of the things that we do is laugh a lot. And we improvise constantly. Even if we're butting heads over something and arguing, I'll throw in something that makes me laugh. And she bursts out laughing. And it's just this tension dissolver. And, but I, it's not a prepared line or circumstance. It's just, she says that because of the way I was raised, I had to improvise from a very early age and, you know, in big life skills. That's kind of like how I survived prison and then went on to meet you know, like some big wigs and all this kind of stuff. 
and always be the person they said, well, let's invite Jerry because I didn't treat them like celebrities. I treated them like people and, you know, had fun with them. And it's also an anti-authority thing, I believe, where because the warden, when he would, you know, call me in to dress me down or, you know, try and shame me or something like that, I would call him John because that was his name. If he was calling me Jerry, I called him John. And, and then if he said, you know, that's Warden Slansky to you, I would just, I wouldn't call him anything after that. Because it's not like I had to address him properly or something like that. But everybody, the, you know, the head of the Department of Prisons for the state and everybody I talked to, every judge, lawyer, you know, head of the Ways and Means Committee in the legislature, um, they were just all first name people because I was a person with them. And I think it helped with my, my own feelings of inadequacy to kind of level the playing field, you know? Nobody thinks of, you know, nobody thinks of me and inadequacy in the same sentence, but. Not possible. And, and what, I, what I heard in what you just said, the piece when you went back to your childhood and what, what Kay's perception was that because you needed to improvise as a child to maybe make adult decisions. And so as an adult, I see you as being very playful and very almost childlike. And it's, and it's almost like taking it back, mm. like taking back what you didn't get to be then as a gift to yourself now. Well, I remember talking to my brother. Uh, he came to visit me one time. And I, and I said, I can tell you right now that, you know, your idea about like being adults and all this kind of stuff, it's adults are just kids with suits on, you know, and they, they have to defend wearing the suit or whatever it is. And so they get caught up in all this positional stuff. And it's just there's nothing different about them. You know, they have the same fears and the same secret desires and all that kind of stuff as children do. Don't you think we get taught to suppress a lot of those emotions? Like it's modeled for us that maybe it's not okay? Right, because there are so many phrases None of which say, continue to be a child, continue to be this child. Instead, they say, hey, how old are you? I think it's time for you to act like an adult. You need to grow up and fly straight and blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a million metaphors about how the fun is over. Now, I, as a child, you know, we moved all the time. I went to like sometimes two schools a school year and between Los Angeles, Marin County, New York, um, we bounced around quite a bit. And I mean, we'd move in the middle of the night where my mom would wake my sister and I up and she'd have a grocery bag and she'd say, put all your favorite stuff in here, you know, that you want to take with you. And we're going on an adventure. And so this is like one o'clock in the morning. And so we're, you know, and she said, don't forget socks and, you know, all this kind of stuff. What did you imagine you were running from? Oh, it wasn't presented as we were running. 
It was presented as we were going to something. It's an adventure. We're going on an adventure. So you pack up all the cool stuff you want in a grocery sack. Don't forget your socks and underwear and, you know, another pair of pants. And I'm like, well, what about my toy box? Oh, don't worry. We'll get that. You know, and of course, I never saw my toys again. Um, and so then we get in the car and we, we, my sister and I fall asleep because, of course, it's one in the morning and we wake up in Hollywood. And so, um, you know, and my mom, she was like on the cutting room floor, I think, of uh, South Pacific. She has a credit. IMDb gave her a credit uh, in that. And she was in um, Big Country. And um, I have a great clip of her on uh, a Hitchcock, uh, you know, one of those weekly black and white Hitchcock movies. So uh, and then that wouldn't pan out. There wouldn't be enough paying jobs, you know, to stay down there, even in, you know, a place where I slept in the in uh, the bottom dresser drawer. Uh, you know, it was made into like a little bed for me because I was, you know, like four or five years old. And so I'd curl up in the bottom of the dresser drawer and that was my, my bed. Um, and so then we'd be back up to Marin County, which was a place that she knew, you know, well enough. And she'd get a job as, you know, um, a server or cocktail waitress or something like that at some nice place like the Ondine or um, because she looked like a Vogue model. And so when she dolled herself up, people were like, who the hell is that? And I walked behind her down the street when she had, you know, when she was done up, she was like the cover of Vogue. And so she's walking down the street and everybody is rubbernecking like, that must be somebody famous. And, um, yeah. So what, what was, what was that like for you, Jerry, to, to, to perceive your mom being received that way. You know, I think for someone to hear it from the outside, it's like, well, that must have, you know, that must be different. But if you grow up with that, you know, um, it is what's normal. Uh, we changed our name at the breakfast table one time. She came down and I remember this, she was all dolled up for some reason. And she came in and she said, if you could have, and we're eating breakfast to go to school, uh, or school's coming, I think, in a week. And she said, if you could have any last name at all, you know, uh, what would you like that name to be? And my sister and I look at each other like, is this a trick? And um, she says, no, any name. You could have any name. And of course, there were no Jedi or anything like that or Mandalorians, you know, at that time. So we chose King. We wanted to be Kings. And <laughs> Uh, so I went to school for a year as Jerry King and, and, you know, you don't ask why it's just like, you're on it. And that leads me to so many things ab about you, um, that I remember <laughs> and I haven't even backed up like at all to introduce you or why we're here on pink noise radio, even having this conversation. Who is Jerry Jazz? That's a, that's a, you know, all my life, uh, I told people, I say, you know, if I walked into a room and I was in the room, I would not recognize me. And, and they're like, sure you would, you know? And I'm like, I don't think so. Because 
rather than having like this firm image of who I am, I more experience myself in the moment. And in that is a tremendous power because I'm not beholden to, you know, who I'm supposed to be. And also when people ask me that those kinds of questions of like, so how would you describe Jerry Jazz? Um, I'm kind of at a loss because I'm not walking around with this like, well, let me take this off and show you who I am, you know. When I would get depressed, I would um, write my bio. I would do my kind of resume and then give it to my partner. And my partner would always come back and say, hey, you left out a lot of, what about this and this? And I'm like, oh yeah. And because when I'm writing and I'm feeling like you didn't do anything, you didn't accomplish anything. You know, you started a lot of things, but you know, what happened with them? And because I would remember the things I didn't finish or the things that didn't turn out the way I wanted them to turn out. And the things that I accomplished, I could let go. And so I would have a resume of all the things that I didn't accomplish. <laughs> and until somebody else saw it and they were like, hold the phone here. You know, we all have our own version of like our history and why we did things. And, and in the retelling, I think that it's easy to kind of clean up the shitty side of ourselves. And I mean, in writing my story, uh, cause I'm working on my memoir um, and the first one's called, we used to be Kings. And the second one is called songs I learned in prison. Um, and I realized when I was writing, you know, in a group setting, cause we write at, at the cafes, I, I organized cafe writing for 22 years, 24 years, something like that. And, and people would be laughing like, oh my God, no, you didn't, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, okay, wait a minute, what's that about? I'm talking about robbing a bank and they're cracking up laughing. And so I went back and looked at the way I was writing it. And I had this inside my head to defend against being responsible in a fully self-realized way for my actions that I was clever enough to write in these little jokes and one-liners and stuff like that, that kind of set the situation on its ear and release the tension for everybody by being funny. And so I thought, okay, well, I think we're going to stay out of your head from now on. And so I changed the way I wrote in that, it was dialogue and action that you don't get to know what's inside my head ever. So that way it took away this self-defense mechanism that I created and um, it allowed people to judge me by my actions and what came out of my mouth. So that was, that was a significant shift in my own um, retelling of my history. When I first went to uh, prison, um, and not for my earlier escapades, but for the kidnapping of bank robbery, um, 
as soon as I was in there, I mean, in the county jail, I wept. And of course, people are like, ah, somebody's sorry that they got arrested. And, and I said, you know, it's actually not that. It's me realizing why I got arrested and why I created that situation to get a, killed or arrested and to take myself out of being responsible for my relationship with my uh, girlfriend. So, you know, pretty tall order for a sober person. And, you know, my, my attorney said, um, he says, okay, um, help me out with this. He's normally people get drunk and they go in and, you know, rattle their, uh, their pockets, say, I got a gun in here or a bomb or something like that. Give me some money. And they get arrested. Um, or they drive their car into a wall while they're drunk or to some, into somebody else. Um, and I wanted to go back before it devolves that, you know, you said in the way that people know how that they express these pains and these, you know, this machinery that's running inside of them. And then it gets to this place where they've got to do something. And it's because that's the way they know at the time they're doing it, as opposed to it's their only way. Now that's where the choice comes in. And so when I went to prison, I began examining my life. I'm like, okay, how do I end up here in this place where I don't know anybody? These people are not my friends. This is not the Marin County hot tub group. You know, these people aren't hugging and, hey, brother, how are you doing today? And all this kind of stuff. So how did I orchestrate this environment for myself? And, you know, spent really all of the 11 years that I was in writing and dialoguing, going to therapy, group therapies, um, and challenging myself on all the stuff that I assumed was true. You know, that this is, what can I do? You know, and it's like, well, <laughs> the what you could do was as varied as like the tail of the peacock, you know, as opposed to it was do or die. You know, it's like, well, really it's like do or die, you know, that it's. And you're, and you're putting, and you're putting your hands like really far apart from each other. Yeah. As yes, you're telling there's a huge you variety of shades, colors, yeah. you know, black and white, grays. Um, and it's, people would always, I was a vegetarian. I became a vegetarian in uh, the county jail because I was like wrestling with myself. And I was like, I was just pulling on threads. You know, I didn't know where they were going to lead, but I had lost control of myself. And not control like this Iron Man and, you know, I'm going to do all this stuff, but lost control as in I ended up in a situation that I created that was 180 degrees from where I wanted to be. And so then I began wrestling with myself to say, oh, who's the boss of me? And so I love sugar, love meat, and I took both of those away. <laughs> the guys in the county jail, they loved me because I was giving up my meat, my bacon. Um, I was giving up my um, my cinnamon rolls. I could trade a cinnamon roll for six oranges. And it was like, woohoo, you know. Um, yeah. And so guys were always sitting at my table once I was in the prison um, saying, OK, but 
if you were on, let's say you're on an, um, you're in a fishing boat and the motor doesn't work. And so you'd have to fish, you know, to live. And I'm like, no, that, no that's a choice. I'm like, no, dude, if somebody had like a gun at your head and they were like, you eat this steak. And I'm like, you don't see a choice there. And they're like, yeah, but you die. And I'm like, that's the choice is, you know, facing up to that, that not anything is better than dying. That, you know, because then you've got this sort of Damocles over your head always. Mm. When we worked together back in the late nineties, you told me about self-control while you were, while you were an inmate and teaching yourself like you, you have a phantom itch on your arm. Like I never forgot that, Jerry. You'd have a phantom itch on your arm and you would just look at it. You'd say like, you would look at it and you would go, there's, there's nothing happening here. There's nothing crawling on my arm. I don't even see any loose threads. I don't even see anything tickling it. So you would just look at it and mind over matter and you refused to scratch that itch. Right, right. You just decided like, you're going to fade away at some point and I'm just going to be with this itch. This is just my burden right now. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, look at, look at the spot on my arm and, and then, you know, it'll fade away. And the yeah. number of times I think about that when I have a phantom itch <laughs> and I want to go scratch it. And sometimes I think, what would Jerry do? Like, what would happen if I just willed it away? If I didn't just act on every impulse I had, what could I learn about myself? It's, and, and part of it, I think of the willing it away is also to let it be. And so it, it becomes this expression of, itself. And it's just like, no, you're going to itch me, baby. You are so going to itch me. You know, if you think, you know, I'm here to stay. And I'm like, um, having this dialogue internally with, you know, whatever this thing is and saying, okay, you know, hang out with me. And that so releases the pressure of, I got to do something. It, I mean, it took me half my life to realize doing nothing was an action. And that was one of the discoveries I made up for myself, you know, in, in prison was, cause I always felt like people would say, well, so who are you? And I say, I'm an action figure, you know? And um, something's happening, I'm in action. And to realize it sitting on my hands and just sitting there when I feel I should, you know, do whatever it is, um, that that in itself was a choice and an action and had a completely separate result path from all these other actions that seem more action-y to me, you know? I was in a call today with two, uh, two beloveds of mine who are traveling the path with me of um, authentic relating leadership. And in this call, 
my friend acknowledged that she was feeling some need to caretake for my experience. And she recognized that it was producing a little bit of anxiety as she felt the responsibility to move into doing. And later when I shared that I was actually feeling a sense of peace being with these two, she had an enlightening moment of realizing that what was underneath that, that the, that the origin of wanting to move into caretaking was love. And the habit of needing to fix or do something about it, to move into doing, was actually the part that created the anxiety. And if she let go of the need to do, and instead she just was with me, the being with, and, and we sat with this and kind of unpacked this idea about being versus doing. And that the, in the being, in the being with, there was, there was such a release. You know, there, there, there was a relaxing of the body and there, it actually built better connection yeah. between us. Um, later in the conversation, I was exploring something else. And when we unwrapped that something else, we got to almost the exact same, mm, the exact same solution that just being was so much better than doing. And so in hearing you talk about this, I'm like, oh my gosh, I could just take that lesson and apply it to what you're sharing. And then I'm like, well, where else? Like, how else could my life be better if I could apply more being and less doing? I've found myself to be always diving into, oh, I know how to do that. And, you know, let me save you the trouble. You know, this is, you know, we do this this way. And not in a, like a rude way, but just like, hey, or let me facilitate that. And you can worry about something else. And then going back and looking and saying, so who was that that took this person's experience of that away by like imagining I was smoothing the road and they could worry about something more important and all this kind of stuff when everything's important, these little teeny things and your discovery of not acting on that compelling feeling, which was then bringing up this anxiety of like, I have to do something here. And, you know, breathing is so important. Breathing and just being present, not, not being in denial, not fighting with yourself. Um, somebody, I wish I could remember where I read this, but it was a thing where this person had fought, 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 with the bad side of themselves as they described it and so on and so forth until they finally made this decision to walk out on the stage of their life and hug that ugly, horrible part, that black blackness of themselves and hug that part instead of fighting it and just say, you're okay with me. 
you know, it's okay for you to be here. And just, you know, I wept when I read that because it was like, oh my God, you know, um, I remember being in therapy and the therapist said something like, uh, like, I felt like I had this boot on the, on the, on the, the Jerry who was on the floor and, and had this boot on his neck and was saying, hold on artist, hold on poet, hold on motorcycle rider. You know, you just need to like chill. And so she was bringing up this stuff of saying, well, you know, this, this is all part of you. I mean, this is a rich, rich part of you. This person who rides the motorcycles and wants to sing out loud and, uh, you know, writes terrible poetry. And uh, I put the terrible in there. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, wants to do all these things. Um, and so she said, that's, that's, you know, it's, it's part of you. And what happens is you suppress this person for so long and then you're looking the other way and they throw off your boot and they run out and create havoc. And so integrating that person you in is so important. And so then I just like lit up like, Oh, right. And she was like, well, you know, you don't want to like, <laughs> she, she all of a sudden she had all the, my, my like 180, like, woohoo. She was like, well, let's let's not race into this now, you know. But it was pretty cute. I'm loving picturing the havoc creator. <laughs> yeah, and I, and, I so relate to that. Well, and I didn't have the I had some whiskey and went out and drove like a madman or any of that kind of stuff. No, because you're sober. Right. I was always sober, didn't do any drugs you know, looked at people around me as like the poster children for why I don't want to go that way. And yet when I was, what was I like 45 when I smoked weed for the first time? And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> I have a feeling I know who you were with. <laughs> and, um, and drink wine because I didn't drink, you know, I had like one sip of champagne up until my, you know, being 45, 46, something like that. And um, because, because that could be the unlocking of the gate of this creative person who, who knows what would happen if that guy got loose. And um, yeah, they loved me in prison. They would, they would be like, yeah, we'd love to have you in our cell. <laughs> because they didn't smoke, do any drugs, you know, didn't gamble. And so um, they were like, we only have to split the bag, you know, seven ways instead of eight uh, when Jerry's in the, in the cell. And uh, yeah. So. When you talk about embracing your dark side with your therapist, um, have you, have you gone into shadow work at all? There's a, there's a book that came out by Carolyn Elliott. Hope I'm saying her name right, Carolyn Elliott, called Existential Kink. And it's all about exploring what it is about the patterns of your dark side, of this thing that you continue to experience even as you're repelled by it. And you even say that you don't want it, but it keeps showing up in your life. Mm -hmm. And... Um, in her work and research, 
she's determined that there's something about it that gets you off. It's unconscious. And so it's this work of making the unconscious conscious. And as soon as you bring it into the light and awareness, like when I heard you talk about walking out on stage and hugging that part of you, like that's where the healing is. And that's right. what she talks about in the book. It's in making the unconscious conscious. And that's so much about the authentic relating practice in being in connection with yourself and being in connection with another is in revealing revealing what's happening for you right now in this moment. Yeah. Like when I, when I paused our conversation to go back to something that felt so alive for me, I just wanted to spend the whole hour there. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I think that that is, um, as I've received encouragement, I met a lot of people at the writing table and I'm always writing about my memoir for the most part possibly out of the, you know, 2000 hours that I ran writing groups, I might've done, you know, 20 hours writing fiction. Uh, the rest of it was some situation in my life that I was writing and I was writing it from his point of view and from my point of view and from the person who walked by and only heard half the conversation's point of view, just to experience it in this, hundred percent complete you know thing of, of people's random ideas and and it hurts you know when I I've, I've been outfitting my office and I've been here a year and this has only existed for my office space my creative workspace my my writing table has only existed for a couple of weeks and I was working on the house I was busy doing all these other things and um, I was like so when are we going to write, you know? And, um, and again, it was that thing of like, well, if I publish, will anybody ever trust me, like me, you know, um, again? And, um, and what do, think, what do you think that answer is? <laughs> um, when I, intellectualize about it and see, you know, because my fears are just like, people are going to hate me. You know, there's this black thing inside of me that when you peel this, you know, surface away, this tar is revealed, which if you even get close to it, you're then stained and on and on and on. And this, I mean, I had this feeling kind of like, you're not going to like me all the way back into like grade school. So there was, there was something, some message I'd gotten about who I was in the world that, you know, stuck with me as um, everybody thinks I'm a nice person. And that makes me the most dangerous person in the room because they're like, well, wait, Jerry would never do that, you know? And, and because maybe my, I don't have the same constraints that lots of people have. In what way? Well, in the past, you know, thinking of ways to redistribute the wealth of a casino to, you know, the um, small libraries on the West Coast and publishers and writing color therapists. Um, when the FBI heard all this, they were just like, just keep it simple, dude. Keep it simple. You know, you wanted money, right? 
I'm like, well, money just isn't that important to me, but you know, it greases the wheels in various places and so on and so forth. I'm like, no, 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 but you needed the money. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm fine. And for them, they've got a square they need to fit you in. And so. Um, Your Robin Hood philosophies didn't fit with them. Well, and they called me Robin Hood in their report. Um, and they were like on the radio talking about how they captured this genius Robin Hood, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if I'm so smart, what am I doing here? You know? <laughs> so, yeah, but. <sighs> I think what you were talking about is something that 99% of the human population can relate to. Quite honestly, this feeling of not being liked, that somehow we're not fitting in, somehow we're not doing it right. If I take up too much space, I'm going to be judged. If I'm too loud, um, I'm, you know, people are going to be mad at me. Yeah, I hear it. I hear it over and over again. And it's my lived experience, too. Yeah. And, and I, I'd written, I believe, in one of my columns um, that if you took the clothes off of the guards and the inmates and mingled them together, there's no way you could tell them apart. It wasn't like some of them just had like a better aura, like this person is obviously a law-abiding citizen. We'll put them over here. And this person is clearly a criminal. We'll put them over here. That's not available, which is why uniforms are so important, because it gives us this, this pre-knowledge of, you know, what this person's story is. And based on our initial appreciation of something, because it's all storytelling, that not in a bad way you know, not like stories equal lies or something that's untrue. The story is the story. And so in the initial setup of a story, first couple of pages, we as the reader are set up for what the reality of this story is. And everything that happens after that has to fit in that reality. Or we will be like, whoa, hold the phone here. Did you just say levitated? Yeah, I'm not buying that. Um, whereas if we started off with some aspect of magic in the story opening, we would we'd be like, yeah, yeah, he levitated. You know, sure he did. Um, I get that. And having been a, um, a journalist in the past, I'm very sensitive about the truth and its importance and so on and so forth. So there's tons of unflattering stuff in uh, my book. <laughs> when I read a story, uh, a memoir that touches my heart because of the amount of real sharing that goes on in it, um, like I love The Liars Club. Uh, it's a wonderful memoir and she's, um, she's just telling the truth. It's honest. And what I realized is that the encouragement for me was as a reader, I felt that, yeah, she's got these awful parts of herself and she's done these awful things. 
and I'm still rooting for her because she's like this real person underdog and things that people might not admit to anybody out loud. They see bits of themselves in those actions and that still you can come out on the other side of that and be a good human being. And that I'm thinking about shameless the show with William H. Macy. Yes. It's yes. The there you go. Series. Yeah. And, and I, there's so much, there's despair and there's joy and they just keep stepping in their own mistakes. Yeah. Because there's just this way that they know how to show up. Right. And I right. still root for them. Yes. Even though I can't believe what they're doing and how disgraceful it might seem to me. Right. Right. And, and when, so I, I took encouragement that by my writing my memoir, it would not be a gun to my head that I would, when I said publish, would pull the trigger. And that would be the end of me, that nobody could love that person anymore. So, um, so as I read all these other memoirs where people were really honest with their alcoholism or their sexual misadventures or, you know, what they're cheating um, in business and so on and so forth that on the other side of that, as they weathered it and didn't end themselves um, by making themselves stupid or killing themselves um, or resigning themselves to be that person, um, that there was redemption. That's a big deal to me is uh, the redemption theme. And it's, I think it's a very hard thing as a human, as me, to feel like I crossed a line and now I'm a good person. You know, like I did all this stuff and then because of these five things that I've accomplished, you know, I'm good. How do you define redemption? Is it a destination? Yeah, it can't be. Yeah. It, it's, it's a journey. Uh-huh. And, and I've always been very much a journey person that as I'm going along, um, it's in the doing of it. If I'm trimming a tree outside or digging in the compost next to a cottonwood that I planted, so it has like these super nutrients. Um, and we live in the desert, by the way. <laughs> um it's all, it's all part of the process. It's not something I'm doing to redeem myself. It is the work of redemption. And I feel funny calling it that because I'm only saying that to you. It's not when I go out to work in the yard or repair a leaky roof, or I'm like, I'm redeeming myself. Damn. You know, it's, it's being the, person who's doing something useful to the world. And some people might look at it and saying, wasting your time, Jerry. Others might look at it saying, well, I hate that. I'm not interested in that at all. I don't care about gardening or music or, you know, you know, just turn your book into a movie, you know, so I can, you know, get it. So for me, it's just like the everyday work that, and I wrote about this, you know, 40 years ago that everything everybody does matters. And I always loved it when they'd say, 
it's nothing personal. It's just business. And I'm like, but business is personal. You know, that's the thing you say to give yourself this ticket to do some awful thing, to give yourself permission. You know, it's like, well, I was smoking weed and, you know, I acted like an asshole. And I'm like, well, then there must be some big part of you that is an asshole. And the weed gave you permission or drinking, you know, I don't think weed turns out assholes, but. Um, but drinking sure can. Yes. Yes. And then people like, hey, I had five beers. I've got my ticket to act like an asshole. And. And then when you talk to them, you know, like right there in the moment as they're, you know, trying to clear the bar and find a gun. And it's like, hey, fellow, what's going on? You know, uh, you sound hurt to me. And they're like, you know, they start sobbing. So, um, yeah, not you sure. See how that. No, I, you see that though. I, I think that's, that's one of your many gifts. I, I remember that in, in working together, like there, there's something about you that seems to have a lens into something. It's almost as if you, um, understand human behavior in a way that some people might not even understand themselves. I mean, you, you said, here's this person five beers in looking for the gun in the bar and you're like, hey buddy, what's going on? I'm wondering if you might be hurt. If something's- Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll usually skip the what's going on. I'll just go right to the hurt because what's going on can be like, you it's know, a story. Right. It's the story they're telling themselves on why they can be so, as opposed to um, who hurt you? You know, where, wow, where's that pain coming from? And because they want to share that, you know, it's this bubbly, shitty acid that's inside of them that, you know, is burning away their life. And the only time they get close to it is getting drunk or storming the Capitol building, you know? I mean, being at a football game and having a beer and, you know, picking a fight with somebody, it just, um, they're, I always saw those things as it, it's like they got a ticket and they got this ticket and they're just like, it's not a get out of jail free card, that's for sure. But it's this thing that gives them permission to, act out in a way that they understand. And, and that can change because, you know, I've hugged people who were trying to kill somebody and, and they started crying because the expression, the penultimate expression of what they were feeling was not in knifing that person. It was in releasing this tension like when people fight in arguments and they have this edgy relationship and so there'll be a causation thing where they'll egg on a fight to clear the air of the fight rather than waiting for the other shoe to drop and the tension is too much because that's what they know that's that's what they know. You know, just like me growing up, hey, put your stuff in the bag. It's like, that doesn't create any tension in me, you know. Um, I'm filling my bag with goodies and we hop in the car and fall asleep and wake up in Wonderland. 
I remember living in New York as a kid with, in, with my family and my mom coming in and sharing. And she was absolutely delighted that she had talked with two separate people at this party that was happening. And one person saw me as this math genius that, you know, we had discussed something and um, he was just like, oh my gosh, this guy's just like amazing. And she, then she had another conversation with another person unrelated to that. And he saw me as this comedian, just the funniest person in the room. And she loved that there was this disparate um, concept of who I was. And at the time, you know, I was 10 years old. Um, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't like, yeah, I'm, I'm nailing it. Um, it was just the chameleon in me at that time to adapt to whatever the situation was. If you wanted to talk about fine art, I love art. You want to talk about opera? I don't care for opera. Uh, musicals? Love musicals. And, and so I could hold a conversation with any adult about the things that we both liked. And it would seem like for them, it was like, Jerry's a music lover. Jerry's into math and science. You know, Jerry's into being a hacker. Some of my teachers even signed my yearbook um, to the biggest hacker I know. And uh, pre-computer days, of course. <laughs> and, and for me, it was just like whatever's on the table, that's where we are. And, you know, as a 10-year-old. And I love talking with people and hearing their ideas and their different takes on things um, because you know you hear your own family's take on stuff all the time and then somebody else comes in and, and is arguing with your mother or your dad um, my stepfather in this case a very learned person and they're having these intricate discussions about how this event can be seen from these two opposite these polar opposite places and my mouth is open like what you know um, who knew there was another point of view? I'm sensing that you take some pride in this chameleonship that you develop for yourself. Um, maybe in hindsight, because at the time it's, it's just who I am, as opposed to I've crafted this chameleon and now I'm going to use chameleon finger number one and you know be successful in this thing so how do you want to end our time together hmm. something you were hoping to talk about or share knowing that knowing that what i like to do in this program is pull on the thread of aliveness in in what makes you you what turns you on why you do the things that you do Well, I think it goes back to that difficult question of like, so who am I? Is the story that you set up for yourself in the morning when you get up every day, you know, you get up and it's, there's some expectation of what your accomplishments are going to be during that day, who you're going to have to interact with, you know, so on and so forth. And so, um, and there's a picture of you in that. And 
what that you is going to do. And if that you is honest and truthful, the picture of you is honest and truthful, then you're empowered. And if the picture of you is a picture of someone's expectations, your parents, you know, your, your partner, whoever, then a lot of pressure, you know, you're performing to this, this thing up here that may not relate to you at all. Mm -hmm. And the accomplishments then can't be owned by you. You know, you accomplish something good there. Well, it really wasn't myself. I mean, you're saying that to yourself somewhere in your secret dialogue back there. Whereas if you're you and if you were successful, it's like, wow, you know, it's, it's, it's one more piece of armor that you don't have to carry around. So I hear an opportunity to check in with yourself and be clear about your intentions. Who are you showing up for? Yeah. Who, are you, who are you showing up as? Exactly. Because if your story is, you know, I'm a, I'm a deal maker, you know, and I'm a deal maker because, you know, I'm an iron fist and blah, 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 blah. Well, oh my gosh, you know, that's a, that's an awful person to be. <laughs> I, mean, I wanted to share a story that I shared yesterday with someone about you. Uh, I was at a meeting with uh, the Albuquerque uh, Film and Music Experience. And um, I'm a non-volunteer there. Uh, I tell them I'm not a volunteer. And so I'm just there because I care about them. So um, they had this calendar of great ideas and all this kind of stuff, but very little people power to accomplish them. And I said, well, I think it's important to hear all the great ideas. And what Sherry Hauser did for me one time was I had this idea that I just really loved. And she was like, hold on, let me get the book. She got a book. And she wrote down what the idea was. She asked me some clarifying questions and then said, okay, here's our calendar. What of these things do you want to not do so that we can do this? And I was like, what? I mean, it was a jaw dropper for me to have the idea honored genuinely and then put me in the driver's seat of saying, let's do it. How are we gonna make this happen with these other things that we're doing? with the finite resources of the world. And so it was like, aha. And I, I am so grateful for that moment because you honored me as a creative person and also showed me the real world of not in a punishing way, but in a, it's up to you. What do you want to do? And, and it was, it illuminated that whole thing. So um, I enjoy sharing that with people who are struggling with, you know, those kinds of things and say, honor it, honor the creativity that you've got there, get it down and not in some obligatory, well, okay, I'll write this idea down, but just to honor that creativity and then say, let's make a choice about it. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that beautiful story and taking me back there. Yeah. And I've done that many, many times. And I, I relate that to people as like this tremendous gift that you gave me um, in the most unexpected and real way. 
you know, it wasn't some pretentious thing. It was just like, here's what we're doing. And, um, and it was wonderful. I'm super touched by that. Thanks for being on the radio with me, Jerry. Oh, Sherry. I was, I was uh, very shy about coming on and, uh, and you are the, you're like the, um, the guarantee that it's going to be okay. And so thank you. <laughs> well, next week's guest is going to be a big surprise. Mostly because I don't know who it's going to be yet. I hope you'll stay tuned and find out. We'll be airing again on Cafe Racer Radio next Sunday at 10 a.m. Meantime, if you want to follow any of my shenanigans on Facebook, I've got a group called Mine and Shine the Gold Within. It's a place for people to gather who are willing to love themselves just a little bit more. I'd love to hear from you there. Meantime, thanks for listening.